Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The FT This week, President Mahmoud Abbas presses his argument for Palestinian statehood at the United Nations. We ask what do the people on the streets of Israel and Palestine really think about the prospect? People in the West Bank in general are supportive of this move of the Palestinian leadership. However, they don't have a high expectations. Uh, they understand that this is a purely political move, that little should be expected in terms of the impact on the practical day-to-day aspects of the life of the people here. An activist Turkish foreign policy sees Turkey facing confrontation on many borders. Beyond the hectic events, there's a clear strategic purpose. They want to show that they're independent-minded, but indispensable for the rest of the West. The fear is, with so much going on, so much tension, and so many military movements, something could go wrong, and that the Turks may be not just assertive, but overconfident. And rising inflation and soaring property prices in Hong Kong opens up the gap in living standards between the rich and poor. So the people that are using the food banks are new immigrants, people have just come from China single mothers, pensioners, people are really kind of falling between the cracks. For example, you see pensioners around and even some of the big flashy buildings picking up cardboard or tin cans and they'll then go to the centre and sell those. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. We start this week with Palestine. President Mahmoud Abbas of Palestine is due to make his case for statehood to the United Nations on Friday and diplomatic manoeuvres in New York are getting increasingly frantic. But what do the people of Israel and Palestine really think about the prospect and chances of a Palestinian state? Joining me on the line from Ramallah is Ghassan Khatib, head of the Government Media Centre, and in Jerusalem, the journalist and former editor of the Jerusalem Post, David Horowitz. Mr Khatib, give me an idea, how seen from the West Bank do you think things are going in New York? Well, people in the West Bank in general are supportive of this move of the Palestinian leadership. However... They don't have a high expectations. Uh, they understand that this is a purely political move that might put us on relatively higher ground politically, diplomatically, legally. But there seems to be understanding among the majority of the public that little should be expected in terms of the impact on the practical day-to-day aspects of the life of the people here. Was there much disappointment at President Obama's speech or was it, what, did you more or less expect him to say what he said to reject the idea of Palestinian statehood now? disappointment because it's not only that he was not uh, up to the expectations but I mean he also refrained from mentioning things that he mentioned in previous speeches I mean he didn't refer to the problem of settlement which is uh, at the core of the current crisis he didn't refer to the borders of 1967 so he is reiterating the well-known American position but there was quite disappointment here The Israelis as I understand it, and I'll come to David Horowitz in a moment but that they argue that By going for this UN route, the Palestinians are taking the route of gesture politics and are turning their back on the peace negotiations. What's your response to that? I don't think 
this makes sense because the Palestinians can be accused of many things, but not avoiding or refraining from negotiations. We negotiated for 20 years with all Israeli governments. The problem from a Palestinian perspective is that these bilateral negotiations need to be revised, needs to be evaluated by the international community in order to understand how the international community can contribute to making it more productive, more meaningful. That's why we don't see the move in the UN as an alternative to the negotiations, efforts by the international community to try to energize the peace process, to try to find what went wrong in it, what can be done by the international community in order to make it more productive. David Horowitz, I mean, put like that, it sounds pretty reasonable. So why has the Israeli reaction been so alarmed by this Palestinian bid for statehood at the UN? Israel has felt, and I'm talking sort of middle ground mainstream Israel, that it wants to partner the Palestinians towards statehood, but it needs them to indicate that they are ready for genuine reconciliation. And I think that was um, very much the unstated theme of what the president was saying, and that's been you know, the Israeli position uh, along the road. What about the uh, Palestinian argument that we heard from Mr. Khatib that, well, actually, the central issue is Israeli settlements and that even if the Israelis don't have an assumption of good faith on the Palestinian side, how can the Palestinians assume good faith on the Israeli side when, when settlements have been so active and Mr. Netanyahu only stopped them briefly? But Israelis don't believe that it's a matter of territory or settlement so much as a matter of absent reconciliation, absent Palestinian acceptance of Jewish historical rights to sovereignty in this sliver of land. And that's, again, why the presidential speech yesterday, which I think for the first time in that kind of forum, spoke about tiny Israel and the historic Jewish homeland and the need for the more powerful countries around Israel to change their hostility. That's why that speech resonated so powerfully in Israel. And that's quite significant, isn't it? Because, first of all, I think the Israelis have been very doubtful about President Obama for some time. You're saying that that has changed Israeli perceptions of Obama. I wouldn't get too carried away. I think Israelis are indeed sophisticated and they recognize that the president is now heading into an election campaign. If only Obama had made a speech like that in Cairo at the beginning of his presidency, with all of the goodwill outreach to the Arab world, if he'd also only stressed then the Jewish historic connection to this land and therefore the need for, uh, for reconciliation. I think they would have loved this speech two years ago. They appreciate it now, but they're perhaps a bit more cynical about it. OK, well, let me finish by asking you both the same question. We're obviously in the midst of a, of a big diplomatic week in New York. What's difficult, I think, is to, is to gauge whether this is truly a significant moment, whether this will be a big chapter in the Israeli-Palestinian saga. Mr. Khatib, does this feel like an important moment? I think it is. This is a difficult question. We have to wait and see. But uh, I think that uh, trying to depart uh, from the pure bilateral negotiations and try to engage the international community in more productive, more collective uh, role in uh, trying to help and supervise the peace negotiations between Israel and Palestine, I think that this is an important step. And it shouldn't be misunderstood. It's not about delegitimizing Israel. Palestinians are willing to recognize Israel in its borders, but Palestinians are having a problem not with the Israeli existence in Israeli borders, but with the Israeli consolidation of its control in the Palestinian-occupied territories. So we have a problem with their behavior in our territories, but we don't have a problem with their presence, with their legitimacy in their own border. 
Okay, David Horowitz, let me get your view. Do you think this is a big week, particularly in the context of the Arab Spring, the souring of Israel's relationship with Turkey as well? I think that any moment is potentially ripe for progress, but it requires genuine goodwill on both sides. Israelis remember that from, from 1948 to 1967, when there was no Israeli presence in the disputed territory, the entire neighborhood nonetheless was trying to wipe this country out. And therefore, it's very nice to hear, and it's good to hear, Palestinians saying we are not trying to delegitimize Israel. But if the international community endorses positions that do not uphold Israel's current demographic balance, if they do not endorse positions that ensure Israel cannot be threatened militarily by a new Palestine, then it becomes counterproductive because you then have ostensible international endorsement of positions that Israel cannot literally live with. If, however, the international community says to the Palestinians, as President Obama said, you have to take positions that enable Israel to feel secure physically in terms of the population, in terms of military threats, then I think the middle ground in Israel has long been ready to try to partner the Palestinians towards statehood. Okay, well, David Horowitz, Ghassan Khatib, thank you very much, both of you, for, for taking part in this discussion. One of the reasons for Israeli anxiety in recent weeks has been a serious breakdown in the country's relations with Turkey, once an important ally. The dispute dates back to the killing of nine Turkish citizens a few months ago when Israel intercepted a ship that was trying to break the blockade on Gaza. Now, following a failure by the Israeli and Turkish governments to agree a statement on this Mavi Mara incident, Turkey has expelled the Israeli ambassador and even hinted that it might provide naval escorts to future Gaza flotillas. Dan Dombey, the FT's Turkey correspondent, is on the line from Istanbul. Dan, Turkey used to have this foreign policy saying zero problems with its neighbours, and yet it seems that it's got problems on, on many fronts now. Let's start, because we've just been talking to Israelis and Palestinians about that issue, with this conflict with Israel. How serious is it? I think this is quite serious, but I think it's interesting in two ways. First of all, I think uh, the Turks are enormously frustrated that they didn't get a deal with the uh, Israelis and blame the Israeli government for not had, having issued a partial apology, which they thought the Bibi Netanyahu had signed up to. So there's a clear element of frustration here, but it goes much more than this. The Turks are clearly using the uh, new tone that they have on Israel to project their leadership throughout the Arab world and bolster Prime Minister Erdogan's popularity on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's real fears in the U.S. and elsewhere that this could really spiral out of control. That said, the Turks are playing a very clever double game in a certain sense, because they at the same time are showing their independence from the U.S., and their real deep feelings of ambivalence at the very least towards Israel, while also showing their indispensability to the NATO alliance. So perhaps the most interesting strategic development of the last few weeks was that Turkey signed on to a radar deal with NATO, which is intended to inform both the US and NATO allies about missile threats from Iran, and which, as a number of Turks have pointed out, is bound to benefit Israel as well. So that's the Israel side of things. Now, in the last day or so, it sounds as if Turkey is going to put quite serious sanctions in place on Syria. Again, that's a, a real reversal from a previous attempt to have a rapprochement with them, isn't it? Yes, and again, to be honest, it's an interesting case because the, this is born out of frustration, but it has significant strategic consequences. 
The frustration is very obvious, the zero problem with its neighbours policy, which Turkey pursued, that you referred to. Of that policy, the poster child was the rapprochement with Syria. We saw trade go up with Syria. We saw Prime Minister Erdogan go on holiday with President Assad. We saw real cooling of tensions in Turkey's southeastern border, where they'd really fought a very difficult war against the PKK, which had Syrian safe haven a decade and a half ago. And yet, when the Arab Spring came, the Turks much to their surprise, realized that they had no real power to convince Assad to go the way of reform. They made one last big effort in August when they sent the foreign minister to six and a half hours of talks with Assad. It led to nothing. And ever since then, the Turks have moved much closer to the Americans in their position about uh, whether Assad can stay in power and what to do about him. This weekend, Prime Minister Erdogan said after meeting President Obama that they were now working on sanctions with the U.S., And we've seen that already kind of move into effect with a number of reports that the Turks are now blocking Syrian flights across their territory that could be carrying arms shipments to Assad. Again, it shows that Turkey is just a crucial country, really, for the rest of the West in terms of dealing with these problems in the Middle East that are right at the top of the international agenda. There are two further conflicts we should probably touch on before, before leaving Turkish foreign policy. There's this conflict with Cyprus over the Cypriot efforts to drill for energy in the seas around Cyprus and the problem with the Kurds and what the Turks always say as a PKK terrorist organization in northern Iraq, that's also hotting up. Yes, those are both hotting up. On the Cyprus issue, this is a very difficult case. Really, to be honest, the Turks feel that if the Cypriots, the Cypriots have reached an agreement with Israel to kind of work out who has what maritime territory in the Eastern Med, and they're now, they've now started drilling for gas in that area. The Turks feel that this is an act of bad faith on the Cypriots' part, and that if Cyprus does have a gas bonanza, that will really eliminate the very last source of pressure to get a deal with the Turkish Cypriots in the north of the island. That said, the Turks don't have much of a legal case. So in response to what Greek Cypriots are doing, they say they're sending ships and their warships to the zone. They're going to start drilling themselves in arrangement with the Turkish Cypriots. And the potential there is, is for a maritime confrontation. Now, I should add that people think the likelihood of shots being fired of this really turning ugly is fairly low. But the risk is enormous should it turn bad. That contrasts with what's happening in northern Iraq. Since August, the Turks have been carrying out bombing raids of northern Iraq where there are PKK safe havens. That's a Kurdish separatist group. And the Turks have made clear that they're planning a land incursion or what some people would call an invasion in northern Iraq. The general feeling here is, and maybe this is mistaken, that that's containable. It's happened before. The likelihood is very, very strong of an invasion into northern Iraq. But because the PKK is no friend of the Kurdish government in northern Iraq, and because the Kurdish government really relies on better ties with Turkey as a counterbalance to its dependence on Baghdad, the hope is that will not spiral out of control. Nevertheless, uh, if you can see, it's, it's pretty hectic over here. But beyond the hectic events, there's a clear strategic purpose, I think, in the Turks. They want to show that they're independent-minded, but indispensable for the rest of the West. The fear is, with so much going on, so much tension, and so many military movements, something could go wrong, and that the Turks may be not just assertive, but overconfident. Dan, thank you very much. And to our final topic for today, Hong Kong. The city's been booming for some years now, but rising inflation and soaring property prices is increasing the gap in living standards between the rich and poor. As FT correspondents discovered this week, when they visited the soup kitchens in Hong Kong, Life for even those employed in the city is increasingly tough. Earlier, Serena Tarling spoke to the FT's bureau chief in Hong Kong, David Pilling. She started by asking him about the soup kitchens in Hong Kong and whether their numbers are increasing. We saw a kind of a spike in 2008 after the Lehman crisis. 
Um, then those levels actually went down quite quickly because Hong Kong's economy picked up very fast in 2009, 2010. We're seeing a slight uptick again now, but it, we haven't yet reached um, 2008 levels. Sort of people that are using the sort of food banks are new immigrants, people have just come from China, uh, single mothers, pensioners, people are really kind of falling between the cracks. So if you're a pensioner who hasn't managed to save very much, I mean, for example, you see pensioners um, around and even some of the big flashy buildings central here picking up cardboard. And what they're doing is they're picking up those cardboard or tin cans and they'll then go to the center and sell those. You're seeing very high inflation in Hong Kong at the moment, as you are um, around uh, Asia generally. And obviously that hits the poor harder because more of their income goes to things like food. Um, and so on the margins, you probably are seeing a, a sort of pickup in, in people using food banks. Is it significantly worse in recent years than it has been before? I mean, you think back to, for example, the time of the walled city and the levels of poverty that you saw then. I mean, are we looking at similar poverty levels now or has it got worse and is it likely to get worse going forward because of inflation? Relative levels of poverty, I think, yes, you are seeing the problem getting worse. You know, Hong Kong has a population of 7 million. Uh, if I remember the figure correctly, about 1.2 million people earn below half the median wage. And the median wage is actually very low here. And um, that's not a lot of money, as I say, in one of the most expensive cities in the world. Are we starting to see any sign of social unrest or protest as a result of the growing inequality? Hong Kong has a reasonably strong tradition of protest people coming out on the streets. And um, there was a budget earlier this year where people did protest about the budget. They protested because the government had huge surpluses and actually eventually agreed to hand back money. That They handed $770 to every single, that's US dollars, to every single Hong Kong citizen, rich or poor. And uh, a lot of people thought this was a stupid thing for the government to do. They would have preferred the government not to collect that money in the first place or to spend it on things that the people think need doing, cleaning up the environment. Uh, putting in clean buses and beginning the rudiments of a welfare state. How likely is it that you think that the government will be pressured to set up a welfare state? I think under the present government, it's, it's almost impossible. Remember, Hong Kong is not a full-fledged democracy. The professional classes here, the Hong Kong tycoons, uh, still have a, a very big sway in parliament. And land is actually one of the other big problems here. Uh, land is parceled out by the government in very large parcels that can only really be afforded by big developers. And that tends to keep the land prices artificially high, which is obviously not very good if you're a middle-income or a Hong Kong citizen. But for those who have access to land, for those who own apartments, especially for those who are developing land, developing apartments, and this is in a sense a license to print money. And these are the people who have a bigger say in the legislative agenda. That was David Pilling talking to Serena Tarling, and that's it for this week. My thanks to Gassan Khatib in Ramallah, David Horowitz in Jerusalem, Dan Dombey in Istanbul, and David Pilling in Hong Kong. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.